So we are in this series called Following the Way, and it's a series in which we are looking at how Jesus made disciples. I hope that we have established at this point that Jesus calls us to make disciples, that that's the the primary mission that we have been given by God, is to make disciples. And so if we are to be disciples and followers of Jesus, it would behoove us to figure out how the master made disciple and follow him in that way. We want to be disciples? We want to be good disciples? We do things the way the one that we're following did them. And so last week we we looked at at this, this relationship that Jesus had with God which is really hard sometimes for us to wrap our minds around because, you know, Jesus is God, and yet it's very clear in, in Scripture that, that he goes out to, to spend time in prayer and fasting, to spend time alone with God. And we talked about that last week, and how everything that Jesus does, all of the other relationships that Jesus has, sort of flow out of this relationship that he has with God. That if we, want to, if we want to be good disciples, if we want to be good disciple makers, that we too need to find that time to spend alone with God. To grow in that relationship. To grow and, and have that be the, the, the foundation that everything else rests on. But... Jesus doesn't just make disciples by wandering off by himself alone in the distance and spending time alone with God. We were listening yesterday to um, one of those great courses. Are you all familiar with the great courses programs? Or are you all not the kind of nerd that I am? So these are where they go into like a a college classroom or or, or wherever and they record a a well-known expert in a field giving a lecture um, you know, a, a series of lectures over a particular topic, and then they turn around and they sell it to poor saps like me that want to listen to things in the car and feel this insatiable need to know more and more. So we've, over the last year or so, we've gotten really into, I at least have gotten really into these great courses. I think Audrey tolerates it. And listening to one yesterday that was early Middle Ages, so talking about, and it's, we've just started it, so talking about the transition from antiquity to the Middle Ages, from the fall of the Roman Empire to the beginning of the Middle Ages. And, and the church and church history plays an central role in this story. So a lot of this story is church history, which makes me really happy. We, we got to listen to, to a lecture on Augustine, uh, Augustine, St. Augustine of Hippo last night, and I did a happy dance in the car because I love Augustine that much. Because I'm weird. But, but they were talking about the fact that this thing happens very early in the life of the church. Once Constantine comes along and, and sort of makes the Roman Empire Christian, one of the things that happens is persecutions end. And martyrdom ends. And it had become such a central part of the life of a believer in the first couple of hundred years, they couldn't understand what it was to be a believer who wasn't under that kind of pressure. 
On Wednesday nights, we're, we're looking at the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation, and this is the background to that story is these persecutions that are being delivered upon the church. And so what happens is, is there are, these, there are these, these folks, the first one is, is St. Anthony, and he goes out into the wilderness, out into the desert in Egypt, and basically is like, if I can't be martyred by the Roman Empire, I'm going to make my life as miserable as possible. And so he wanders off to be a hermit. Now, as often happens with hermits, um they attract a following. And so, like, every time a group of people would find him and they'd sort of gather around him and he would throw his hands up in exasperation and he'd run further out into the wilderness. This is the beginning of the monastic tradition. We don't, end, we don't have Friar Tuck without St. Anthony. Here's the problem with St. Anthony. Now, I fully believe that maybe that there are some people who are called to live that sort of set-apart life. But it's really hard to make disciples if you're living in the wilderness by yourself. Let me tell you, over the last year, I've, I've looked into what it would be to buy some acreage in Alaska and just disappear be great, right? Go where there aren't any cell phone signals, where there's no 24-hour news cycle, where there aren't people who are wrong on the internet. But if we run to the wilderness, if we separate ourselves from the world, we can't make disciples. Jesus did not separate himself from the world, did he? In fact, Jesus is accused over and over and over again by the religious folks, by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the priests, of being too much in the world. You're hanging out with the wrong people. You're eating with the wrong people. You're talking to the wrong people. You should be a little more separate. So Jesus going off and spending time alone with God, that was central. We started with that for a reason. It is the beginning. But it is not the end. And so now, over the next several weeks, as we, as we continue this series, we're going, to be, we're going to be looking at these other relationships that Jesus has with different groups of people and how he uses those relationships, how he uses that context to build disciples, to make disciples. So this morning, we're going to be looking at Jesus' relationship with, with the crowd. And we're going to talk about the crowd as, as almost as a character in and of itself. And so this morning, we're going to be in Luke. We're going to be in Luke in two places. We're going to start in Luke chapter 4, and then we're going to uh, roll over to Luke chapter 6. So we're going to start in Luke chapter 4 with the 16th verse, and then we're going to roll over to Luke uh, chapter 6, the 17th verse. Will you stand with me as we read God's Word together? He meaning Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up 
to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it is written, The Lord, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives to recovery, to, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying to them, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, Isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Doctor, heal yourself. What we've heard that took place in Capernaum, do here in your hometown also. He also said, truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But I say to you, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's days when the sky was shut up for three years and six months while a great famine came over the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them except a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had leprosy, yet none of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up, drove him out of town, and brought him to the edge of a hill that their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. And over to chapter 6, just a couple of verses here, starting with verse 17. After coming down with them, he, Jesus, stood on a level place with a large crowd of his disciples and a great number of people from all Judah and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. They came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those tormented by unclean spirits were made well. The whole crowd was trying to touch him because power was coming out from him and healing them all. This is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly God, as we continue, as we continue our time of worship this morning, as we enter into this time of the study of your word, I just pray that your spirit would be among us, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. So Jesus comes to the synagogue. Last week, as we ended up and we wrapped up, we were in in Mark 1 last week, we ended on a verse in which it said that that after Jesus had gone out and and spent this time alone with God, that he, he goes in to the cities and the towns and he goes and preaches and teaches in the synagogues. At the very beginning here, we see that He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up as usual. He entered the synagogue. It's clear that this normal rhythm of life, this worshiping life of the culture, were things that Jesus and his followers participated in. We see many times, several times in the gospel, we see Jesus participating in temple worship. In fact, that's why Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem 
at the time of his crucifixion. They are they're there to, to participate in worship at Passover. But, but there is also this, this, these times that we see him in the synagogue. And, and, and we see it mentioned several times, him being in the synagogue. Synagogue. That's, it's a word that maybe we know. And, and for most of us, I think the, the, the number one thing that we associate it with is the place of worship that Jewish people go to. If you're really on your game, you complete that sentence. The place of worship that Jewish people go to on the Sabbath, which is Friday night into Saturday. That's, that's probably what most of us think when we hear the word synagogue. And there's a reason for that. 99% of us, that's the experience that we have with that word. But the word synagogue, interestingly, is not, it's not a Hebrew word. You would expect the, the place of worship that Jewish folks go to on the Sabbath would be a, a Hebrew word. Or, or maybe an Aramaic word. But it's a, it's a Greek word. Synagogue. And it means assembly. And, and oftentimes, what, the, what synagogue means, synagogue is kind of like church in this way, is that synagogue can mean both the building that holds the assembly and the people that make up the assembly. So we use the word church, right? We, when we use the word church, which comes from the Greek word ekklesia, we, we, mean, we mean the building that holds the people. And the, both of those things can mean church. So, but but that, that, that word, assembly, is important. This is, this is where... Jewish folks came together in the first century to, to pray and to study Scripture. You know, it's important for us to remember, and, and I think sometimes, I know at least for myself, it's, it's hard to remember this. But at the time of Jesus, there's sort of two things happening at the same time. The second temple is still present in Jerusalem. There is still temple worship happening in Jerusalem. Animals are being sacrificed on the altar. And there are these synagogues that have been built in places that aren't Jerusalem. We're not really sure when the first one of these sorts of buildings is built. Probably wasn't called a synagogue originally because it was probably built during the Babylonian exile. The people of God are cut off from the temple. In fact, the temple has been destroyed. Several months ago, we, we talked, we went through last, what, last summer, we went through Ezra and Nehemiah. And we talked about the reclamation of Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple and of the walls of Jerusalem. The, the temple has been destroyed, and so the people of God are trying to figure out what it means to be a people who are supposed to be focused on worship in the temple when they don't have a temple. In a few weeks, we're going to talk about the woman at the well who's a Samaritan. One of the, the big things that split the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and the northern kingdom are those folks who eventually become the Samaritans, is when the kingdom splits, guess where the temple is? The temple is in Jerusalem, and the folks up in 
the northern kingdom don't have access to it. So they start worshiping at Samaria, which is why they become Samaritans. So they're worshiping at a place that God has not designated for worship. That's how they solve that problem. During the exile, what they do is they start, they start gathering. They start assembling. And, and they start praying and studying what bits of the word they have. And so, by the time we come into the time of Jesus, this is a time period that we call Second Temple. Second Temple Judaism. Because the temple that's, that's there during the time of Jesus is the, the second temple, not the first. And so, Second Temple Judaism, you have a temple where animal sacrifice and all of that temple worship is happening, but then you still have in places like Nazareth and, and Capernaum and Fairmont, because you know, brothers and sisters, you would know, right, the temple wouldn't be in Fairmont. Like, it'd be, it'd be in Raleigh. Yes. The main temple in North Carolina would not be in either Chapel Hill or Durham. I hate to say it would be in Raleigh. But the priests would still wear black and gold. But, but in, in places like, like what Fairmont is, you would have these synagogues, these assemblies where people would come together. So both of these things are happening at the same time. Now, the, the kind of Judaism that, that we experience, if you were to go to a synagogue today, and there are different branches of Judaism and all this other sort of stuff, but it's what we call rabbinical Judaism. And that is a Jewish tradition that grows up after the year 70. Because what happens in the year 70? The temple is destroyed. In the year 66, the Jews rebel against Rome. And they do really well for about four years. And in the year 70, in the month of August, the emperor Titus marches in with the lieges into Jerusalem and destroys the temple. And so again, Jews are left asking the question, what does it mean to be a Jew? What does it mean to worship God if we don't have a temple? And this tradition of rabbinical Judaism is born out of that experience. But it's important to note that it's Christianity is also born out of Second Temple Judaism. There are the same question. What does it mean to worship if you're not worshiping in the physical temple? And these are two answers. One is we have the perfect sacrifice, and the perfect high priest? That's our answer to that question as Christians. So the synagogue serves in these, in these communities. It serves as the central religious, cultural, educational, and social center in the Jewish community, both in Israel and beyond. As you read Acts, you find this is, this is Paul's modus operandi. The first thing he does, he rolls into town, he rolls up to first synagogue, and he starts teaching and preaching there. Whether he's in Asia or Greece or Macedonia, anywhere you find the Jewish diaspora, you find synagogues. And so it was this place where they came together on the Sabbath to worship and to pray, but also to study Scripture. 
And so we see that this is what Jesus, Jesus does. And, you know, this, this passage that we read in Luke, from Luke 4, it, it, it happens almost immediately after Jesus returns from this period in the wilderness. Jesus is baptized. He goes out into the wilderness. He, he fasts for 40 days. He's tempted by Satan. And he comes back in and he, he begins this, this ministry in Galilee. In fact, right before where we start, we start in verse 16, verse 15 says, He was teaching in their synagogues, being praised by everyone. And then he goes home. You know, the North Carolina author Thomas Wolfe wrote a, home, you can't, wrote, a, wrote a novel, You Can't Go Home Again. That's what happens to Jesus. He comes home, and, and as, he, as is usual, he enters the synagogue. See, these are, these are men. These are people that he knows, that he grew up around. This is going to be the, the synagogue where he studied Torah as a child and as a young man. This is probably the place where Jesus first starts teaching before he begins his, his ministry as the anointed one of God. Jesus, he's not going to step into a synagogue as a 30-year-old man and be allowed to teach for the first time. He would have started that teaching ministry sometime probably in his early 20s. So he walks in and they hand him Scripture. They hand him the scroll of Isaiah. Which, sometime look and compare Isaiah to the other testaments, the other books in the Old Testament. Isaiah, the scroll of Isaiah, if you've ever seen an Isaiah scroll at a synagogue, it's a big scroll. It's a big scroll. And so Jesus turns to this passage that he reads. Um, notice something. There's this interesting detail here where it says he stands and then he sits. You, you stood to read the Word. And then you sat to teach. So it's important to note here that when Jesus sits and they're all watching Him, He hasn't just been asked to be the lay reader for the day. They are expecting Him to teach. They're waiting for Him to teach. And then, and then He starts. And He starts out really good, doesn't it? They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't, aren't we so proud of him? He, he grew up here, you know. He's one of us. He's so great. He's Joseph's son. I remember Real early, when, when Joseph gave him his first little hammer. But then what does Jesus do? Jesus has read the Scripture. And then he starts applying it. And he applies it in a way that they don't like. He tells two stories. He tells a story about Elijah. And a story about Elisha. Perhaps not the best story about Elisha. As I was reminded of this week, the best story about Elisha is a bunch of kids made fun of him for being bald and he 
set a group of female bears after them. But these stories about Elijah and Elisha, and what happens here? What's Jesus pointing out about these stories? There were Israelites, there were Jews that Elijah could help during a time of famine. But he helps the Gentile. There were, there were Israelites, there were Jews who were suffering from leprosy, but it, but it was a Syrian, it was a Gentile that Elisha helps. Folks get mad. The application makes them uncomfortable. And in perhaps the most Baptist thing that we see in the New Testament, they decide the preacher's got to go, we're going to run him out of town, and in fact, we're going to throw him off a cliff. And it wasn't even over the color of the pew cushions. So what what does Jesus do? How How does Jesus interact with the assembly here? If we're looking at how Jesus interacts with the crowd, if we're looking at how Jesus is using this as an opportunity to, to make disciples, what's, what's he doing? Well, he, he starts in Scripture. He starts in, in Isaiah. And then he, he sort of explains and applies Scripture. And in that process, some don't like it. But instead of sitting and arguing with them, he just passes through. I have to imagine, like, if, if, if you're Jesus in that moment, and you're like, man, I just spent 40 days in the wilderness. I have come face to face with Satan. I have turned him down. And now you're going to get mad at me for preaching God's word? I'm out. Deuces. I'm, I'm headed to Capernaum. And that's what he does. He, he goes to Capernaum and he starts teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. And so we have this sort of, this period in between where several things happen. He, he teaches in the synagogue in Capernaum. He calls Simon and, uh, uh, um, uh, Simon Peter as the first disciple and, and a couple of others and he does some healing and, and then we get to the other passage that we, that we read in Luke 6. Um, as we get there, these, these disciples, it's, it's Simon and James and John are these first that he calls in Capernaum, these, these fishermen. But what we know is we know that they're from Capernaum and he's been teaching in Capernaum. So they've probably, the first place they probably saw him was teaching in the synagogue. They had seen him teaching in the synagogue when he shows up on the lake shore and invites them to come and follow him and become fishers of men. And so what happens, by the time we get to, the, to the, the verse 17 here in Luke 6, where we read, what's happened is, is Jesus has, has got his, his, his 12, in fact, just immediately prior to that, we see him sort of pulling out of the, this crowd that's starting to follow him around, the 12 that he's going to especially invest in. These 12 men that are going to live with him for the next several years. And we're going to talk about the 12 next week. But there's this, there's this other, there's this bigger group that's sort of following him around. And so, and so what happens? He goes up 
to the mountain to pray. He spends all night in prayer. He gathers these twelve to himself. And then he stands on this level place and preaches and teaches the larger group. This is, a, this is a mixed group. There's some folks here that are, well, there's the 12 are here. And there's some other folks that are believers. And then there are folks that have probably just shown up to see what's happening. They've heard things. They've heard that some healing was happening. And, and they want to be a part of that. They've, they've heard that some, some stuff was going on. I mean, and they are from a, a relatively... Decent distance. All of Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. Capernaum's on the Sea of Galilee and Tyre and Sidon's on the Mediterranean. I mean, they've got to cross a not insubstantial area to get to where Jesus is. They've heard some stuff. It's important. This is not folks that already all believe. And among this group, there are probably some folks here, they want something. They're not there to to sort of sit at the feet of the Master and listen and be taught and be instructed. These are people who, they want something. They have a need, and they think that this need can be fulfilled by this man. They're there for their own selfish reasons. So that for many of them, it's going to be the healing that Jesus is doing. They're they're sick, or they have a, a family member who's sick. We see here, too, talking about folks who were being tormented by unclean spirits. They want, they want something. They have a need. They know that, that what's happening with this, with this teacher in Capernaum is something that they want to experience and see and participate in. Many of them are, are hurting, physically or emotionally and spiritually, and they want wholeness. Because the healing, the kind of healing that Jesus does, is it's, it's not a cure. It's, it's, not, it's not fixing the thing that's broken in your body. It's about a restoration to wholeness. There's a difference in Greek between healing and cure. And what Jesus does is is heal. This is the beginning of what is sometimes called in Luke the Sermon on the Plain. Because Luke says that he comes down the mountain to a a level place and preaches. It's very similar to the Sermon on the Mount that we find in Matthew. Um, And there's there's a lot of conversation whether or not these um, these are the same thing or something different. You know, there's a possibility that Jesus had, let's call it a stump sermon. There were certain things that he was emphasizing and that he would preach about. It would not be unusual for a teacher to, to preach something similar over and over and over again. If you go back and you listen to Billy Graham sermons, you're going to see there are, there are themes and there are things that happen over and over again in those sermons, right? Because he has a particular mission, a particular message that he was bringing. Jesus is the same way. There's also the possibility that 
when Luke says a flat spot, that they're still on the mountain somewhere, and there's a flat spot on the mountain, and we've gotten it confused, and this is actually the same event. Because the teachings are parallel. But what's important here is that Jesus is taking this time very close to the beginning of his ministry. Jesus is taking the time as these crowds are beginning to form around him to take the time to address the whole crowd about what it means to build the kingdom of God to be a disciple. There's not some secret knowledge here, Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, I I just called the twelve, but here's, here's the program. Here's the message. So we have these two stories here in Luke of Jesus addressing addressing the crowds. Have have you ever wondered why it was that we gather as a community on Sunday morning? Like, 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 why, why do we do this? What's the point? What's the purpose? Do we do it just because we've always done it? Do we do it because grandma and grandpa and mom and dad drug us to church on Sunday morning and that's what we do? Why? Why do we do this? Why is this important? Maybe you've never asked that question before. Feels like she's closer to God. Feels like she gets the strength to face the weak. There's a, there's a reason that we gather. Let's, 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 let's acknowledge that there's a reason. Let's not bumble through this without thinking. There are reasons that we do this. In Hebrews, we're, we're told, in Hebrews 10, we're told that we should not neglect to gather together as some are in the habit of doing. But we are to encourage each other all the more as you see the day approaching. We are to encourage one another. There's something about coming together as a family. Coming together as an assembly. And spending time together. Because it's in community that we grow. Iron sharpens iron. That we grow. That we, that we get fed. That we feel the support of the people around us. Man, one of the things that's been hard over the last year... One year ago, my father-in-law was preaching. The next Sunday was the last Sunday that we had worship together as a church for over two months. The thing that's been hard about the last year is that we haven't gotten that support from one another. We haven't been here banging against each other, getting sharper. You know, for, for many folks, Sunday morning's how they, how they enter into this, into this family. And it's not the only way to enter. And we're going to be talking the next couple of weeks about how maybe putting aside that old attractional model and focusing on relationships is the way of Jesus. 
But what is true, what is clear from the way Jesus gathers people together and teaches is that, is that this assembly time together is a time of formation, both for those who are already believers, but also for those who aren't yet. And we're, we're formed by these acts of worship that we participate in on Sunday morning. One of the things that has happened over the last few years is we've, equate, we've, we've come to equate the word worship with singing. Oh, we had a really good time of worship this morning. Almost always means we sang some songs that I really like. But there's several things that we do. We're going to run through these real quick. There's several things that we do on Sunday morning that are about formation, that are acts of worship. First and foremost, as Baptists, as children of the Reformation, and I would say as the ultimate children of the Reformation, as the folks who actually finally got the Reformation right, we believe that we are formed through the teaching of God's Word. There's a reason that in almost every Baptist church you walk into, the pulpit is in the center. Walk into a Presbyterian church or a Methodist church or an Episcopal church or a Catholic church or a Lutheran church. The pulpit's not in the center. The pulpit is going to be off to one of the sides. What's going to be in the center is the table because they see the celebration of the sacraments as the central formation. And the, the ordinances are important. We're going to talk about that in a second. But as Baptists... As people of the book, we believe that the reading and the teaching and the explication and the understanding of the Word of God is central to our formation as believers. And we put it at the center of our worship. But we are also formed by the ordinances. One of the things that I love about this church, one of the things that I love about a lot of Baptist churches, is what do you have here? You have three things in the center. You have the table. Because the Lord's table is central to our formation. And the fact that we have not celebrated it in a year breaks my heart. And the time is coming soon where we will. And baptism is central to our formation. We build our buildings, we build our worship centers, our sanctuaries, to reflect what we hold to be important in worship. We're also formed by singing and by music. It's biblical. We see singing happening in worship in the Old Testament and in the New. We're singing in the temple and in synagogues. There are all sorts of like awesome reasons for why music is important and why music is formative and the things that music can do for us. And if you ever want that lecture, we'll have one on Sunday night, and I'll bring in Susie Swinson, and she can tell you all about it because Susie's an expert on this. But here's a real quick example that you know that this is the case. I bet I could take anybody in this room, figure out what year you graduated from high school, and put a song that was a number one song on the radio when you were in high school, and you will still know every word to that song. I picked up a CD several years ago, hadn't listened to it probably in 15 years, popped it in the CD player in the car, and man, if I didn't not only know every word, I knew every beat of every song. Because there's something about music, right, that, that seeps into us. When I was in Petersburg, there was a lady I knew, she never knew me. Because by the time I was there, she had 
very advanced Alzheimer's, but I got to go several times with Pastor Joe and, and sit with her and worship with her. She was on the search committee that had brought Joe. They had been close friends, and she had no idea who he was. But brothers and sisters, we would sing Amazing Grace, and we would pray the Lord's Prayer. And this woman who was nonverbal, who could not speak, who could not communicate, who had no idea who she was, knew the words to Amazing Grace and the Lord's Prayer. There's something about music and about repetition, about what happens, and it drives things deep down inside of us, and it, and it forms us. We're formed through prayer. The time that we spend together praying. And we're going to be, we're going to be working a little bit. I've been reading a lot about prayer and about corporate prayer. And we're going to be centering prayer and worship in some different ways. Because, because prayer is formative. It's that time that we spend with God. It's an important part of worship. And we're formed through this word that, that is maybe a lot of Baptists are allergic to, but it's a good word. And it's this word liturgy. Liturgy means works of the people. And so I'm not talking about empty and rote things. I'm not things, talking about things where we just sort of go through the motions and we don't think about it. But us gathering together and praying the Lord's Prayer or reciting Psalm 23, that's liturgy. A few weeks ago, uh, um, Velvet and Andy Leggett um, came home and joined the church. And I asked them, and I don't know if you caught it, I asked them, I said, I said Andy and Velvet, as so you join this church, do you pledge to support this congregation with your prayers, your presence, your gifts, and your service so that in everything God may be glorified? I need to confess, I didn't come up with that. That is part of the liturgy of joining the United Methodist Church. And I heard it every Sunday for 18 years. And it defines what church membership is to me. It defines what an active church member is. And so if they're joining this congregation, that's the best question I know to ask them. Because it got driven down into me because I heard it over and over and over again. We come to the table and I ask you if you intend to lead a new life. Because I heard that every time we celebrated the table when I was a kid. These words mean something. They're important. They, they come down in us and they form us. Sunday morning, times of worship, times of gathering together, whether it's Sunday morning or Wednesday night. Yes, we do gather on Wednesday night. We're gathering online right now. We will soon be gathering in person again. These are times to grow and be formed. It's time to, to read and study the Bible. It's time to celebrate transformation. If our core mission, if our core mission that we're called to is to make disciples, and I think we've already established that it is, I would offer this, that the worship service on Sunday morning, the time that we spend on Wednesday night, should be focused on making 
disciples. Making us into disciples and making us into disciples that make disciples. The time that we spend together isn't about our own likes and dislikes. It's not about what makes us feel comfortable. It's about creating and forming a culture and a community of disciples that love one another, that support one another, that hold each other up, that help us get prepared to serve the week ahead. Jesus stepped into his hometown synagogue. And he didn't give them something that made them feel good. He didn't give them something that they wanted to hear. He wasn't well received. See, they didn't want to make disciples. They wanted to show up on the Sabbath hear words read from Scripture, and go home feeling good about themselves. They didn't want to make disciples. They especially didn't want to make disciples of those people, those those Gentiles, those people that were different. And so they drove him out. They drove him out of the synagogue in his hometown. They drove him out of the synagogue where he had studied Torah where he had been formed, where he had learned, where the the human earthly part of him grew up. Disciple-making and the centering of disciple-making can be hard and uncomfortable. But we're called together to assembly, to assemble, like Avengers. Except it's not Avengers assemble. It's disciple-makers. A symbol. Let's be shaped and formed and supported and sent out after a week where we've had stuff to a new week where there's going to be more stuff. Prepared to follow Jesus and to make disciples. Our hymn of invitation this morning is 573, Set My Soul Afire. 573.